Real Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Welcome to Real Cuff Radio. And I'm excited tonight because we are introducing another book here. And it's called Keeping Your Airspeed Up. And it's by Colonel, our doctor, Harold Brown, and his wife, Marcia. And Colonel is a World War II veteran, a fighting a pilot, fighter pilot, and he also is a POW survivor. And how are you doing tonight, Dr. Harold? I am doing just great. Looking forward to the interview. Well, we're really looking forward to your story. There's quite a few things I want to mention from your book. Um, But if you want to basically, you know, just start out at the beginning and kind of give them, uh, you know, how you, you know, had a love affair with with an aircraft or with, uh, with flying, and uh, we'll kind of go from there. Well, then let's start where it all began, back in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was born and raised. My parents were from uh, Talladega, Alabama, and they were part of the great migration, of course, that uh, left the South and, uh, and went north looking for uh, new opportunities and whatnot and a new home. So there's where it all began for me. Uh, having lived in Minneapolis, uh, there was much about the South that I did not know and I did not experience as a young boy. But uh, I lived in an integrated neighborhood. There were uh, Swedish people on one side. There were uh, Polish people on the other side. There were Jewish people down on the corner. And right behind us, there were two Latino families. So that's about as integrated as you can get. <clears throat> but we all lived right there together. And uh, this occupied uh, most of my life during my very early years. Uh, for some unknown reason, and I cannot explain why, but when I was about 11 years old and in the sixth grade, I just fell in love with airplanes. I don't know what caused it. I don't know what happened. But all I know is that it happened. And it wasn't just a very minor thing. It may have started out as such, but it soon became my passion. And this is something that I decided I wanted to do. I put all my effort, all my focus on just that one thing of becoming a military pilot. And, of course, you know how kids are. I got into building model airplanes and all of the rest of it. And that continued until I was 16 years old and in the 11th grade. And I was working in the drugstore. I was a soda jerk. And soda jerk means, you know, I was behind the soda fountain making Marlin milks, milkshakes, and all Sundays, all those kinds of things. And uh, I saved up $35. 
And I got my Uncle Kozal to take me out to Wold Chamberlain, a big airport there, which is now a, a very large international airport up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I found the fixed base operator who uh, said, yes, I can give you flying lessons and it will cost you $7 an hour. Well, I only had $35, and it was my hope that I could raise another $35 before I had completed my first five lessons. However, that was not to be. So I only took those first five lessons. I didn't have enough money to continue, and that was the end of my flying. But it certainly was not the end of my passion. That just whetted my passion, and more than ever, those first five flying lessons convinced me that that is what I was going to become, a military uh, pilot. Since I could never be able to afford to become a pilot by my own means. So the next or the best thing was to join the military and become a military fighter pilot. And after graduating in June of 1942, uh, that is precisely what I did. Now, you have to remember that uh, uh, back in those early years, they refused to allow guys like look like me to even sign up for military flight training. We were immediately rejected at all levels, and it just did not happen. So there was a big political fight going on up in Washington, D.C. We had our supporters who felt that we deserved the opportunity. But then on the other side, the power structure, the War Department said, no, it would be a complete, total waste of time, and we are not going to waste the money this way. They used a report that was published by the War College in 1925. Three officers that was teaching in the War College at that time wrote a report, and the report was titled, The Use of Negro Manpower During Wartime. Now, as you can just about imagine, I don't know if the sample that they used was a real sample or not. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say it was an honest sample and the questions to their answers were all real. Well, all I can say is that their sample was a, not a representative of the general population of black folks at that time. As a matter of fact, the sample represented the lowest of the low. Uneducated, could hardly read or write, was right at the very bottom of the social economic ladder. And that is a sample that they use against us to say, no, we will not train you. Well, this fight continued up until March of 1941 when the President Franklin Roosevelt made the decision that no, we will train them. Now remember, in March of 1941, we were not at war at that time. The big war was going on over in Europe and Hitler had ran through and taken over every country 
and Hitler was standing on the east bank of the east bank of the of the uh, of the separation between Europe and England, ready to cross over to invade England. But in order to do so, he had to have air superiority. And that was during the time that Britain was fighting for its life. And at that time, we were not even in the war. But nevertheless, Roosevelt approved us to start flight training in March of 1941. The first class was nominated in July of 1941, and that is when the first class began its training. A good almost six months before uh, Pearl Harbor, and we were actually brought in to the war. Now, in those early years, they wanted everyone to have a reasonable amount of college, and that was one of the basic requirements. Now, they needed pilots, and within a short while, they had wiped out almost the entire pool of people that had a few years of college. But they needed pilots in the worst way. So they changed the rules. And that is when they said we will accept high school graduates who could pass a mental and a physical examination. And if so doing, we would allow them to go in the military, uh, military flight training. And when I graduated from high school at the age of 17, I immediately went down, set for it, passed the exams, and in December, I got a letter saying that I had been accepted. But that is how, that was my path of getting into military flight training. And of course, from there on, it is pretty much history. Uh, I was successful in completing uh, the training program. I was commissioned a second lieutenant. I received my silver flying wings when I was 19 years old, and I was in class 44E. That was May of 1944. So let me just stop right there for just a moment, because from there on, I go into fighter training for a couple of months, and then overseas to join what was then the 332nd Fighter Group, which was the all-black uh, fighter group. Is there any questions you want to ask me up to that well, point? Well, w- when, no, I, when I went through information. Yeah, when I went through basic, they had what they called the Fat Boy Club, and it was, it was guys that came in there that had to lose weight. But I, my understanding is you had to drink a bunch of milkshakes to put weight on to be able to uh Well, that was rather in. interesting. When I went down for my physical, I was five feet, eight and a half inches. And I went down for my physical, and I flunked it. And I flunked it because, for my height, I had to weigh 128 and one-half pounds. And I only weighed 128 and a quarter pounds. And I asked the doctor, I said, are you going to fuck me just because I am a quarter of a pound underweight? And he said, Harold, they've got very strict rules. They give us no leeway. I have to follow them to the letter of the law. 
you have got to meet the minimum requirements. He says, now, you go home and you come back in one week, and I will weigh you again. And he says, do you like malt shakes? I said, oh, I love malt shakes. I'm a sort of jerk. He said, well, on Wednesday, you drink a chocolate malt with an egg in it in the morning and one in the evening, and you do that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and come in on Saturday, and when I weigh you, I guarantee you that you will pass the weight exam. However, don't have a BM until I weigh you. And that's how I got in <laughs> and met the minimum requirements. <laughs> that's good. Okay, so let's move on into, uh, into your fighter training. Okay, my fighter training was, uh, was done down at Wallerboro. We had just switched bases. They used to be up at Selfish Seal. But they moved the fighter training uh, for us from Selfridge down to Warlerboro. And this was uh, uh, just about 45 minutes from, uh, from Charleston, uh, West Virginia. And uh, there is where we were flying at that time. We trained in the P-47, the old Thunderbolt. I don't know if your audience would even recognize that number or that airplane, but that was one of the fighter aircraft that was used during World War II, along with several others. But that was the one that we trained in. That training lasted, oh, approximately seven to 80 days or so, and we got about 70 hours and we finished that, and then my group, my class, was shipped overseas. Uh, we left uh, Cap, uh, Camp Patrick Henry. It was, oh, sometime in early September. We were in a big convoy uh, made up of, oh, just about 100-plus ships, and these are the old Liberty ships, the little small ones. And, of course, we were escorted by some dozen or so destroyer, but it took us 32 days. We were on the water from there until we went through uh, the Rock of Gibraltar. And we then continued down to Oran, uh, Africa, which took another three days. And we then spent four days in Oran, Africa. And then we boarded a ship that went up to Naples, uh, Italy. And uh, we uh, offloaded the ship at that time and uh, waited there for about four or five days. And then the trucks took us across Italy, almost due east over to the Adriatic Sea to Ramatelli. Now, we were part of the 15th Air Force. There were two strategic air forces. One was the mighty 8th Air Force up in England, which was a huge air force, the largest air force that ever existed. And even up to this day, they could put up 2,000 bombers and 1,200 fighters for maximum effort. We were down in the 15th Air Force in Italy. We were flying from north to south, hitting the southern targets in Europe, the 8th Air Force is flying east and west and hitting all of the northern targets up in Europe. Our job in the 8th and the 15th Air Force, the fighter pilot's job 
was one of escorts. Our job was to escort the bombers up over the targets, take them over the targets, and make sure that we could bring as many of them back home safely as possible in order for them to be able to fly another day. And that was our job. It was strategic bombing. And we were bombing all of the infrastructure up in Europe, oil refinery, munition plants, tank, automotive plants, and so forth. And for the obvious reason, if you destroyed all their oil, they aren't building tanks, they can't build any more locomotives and so forth, then you can win the war. They cannot wage war. And that was the theory behind it all. And that is what we did. Okay. Wow. Any yeah. questions about that? No, keep going. Okay. Well, I joined the 332nd, and I joined them in uh, uh, the latter part of September, or maybe early October of 1944. As a matter of fact, my class of 44E classes were graduating every five weeks. But my class of 44E in the uh, United States Army Air Corps Training Command, that was the last class that finished their training, and the war lasted long enough for us to get in a full tour of duty, at least 50-plus missions. All of the classes that came after us, and they only took the three following classes, they didn't have enough time overseas to finish a tour of duty. And the maximum number of missions that they flew was, oh, something like in the teens or early 20s. But our class was the last graduating class uh, that flew a full tour of duty. So... This is the way I started off. Uh, I can recall after we got there and the General Davis, I mean it was Colonel Davis at that time, I don't know if the audience ever heard of the name of Colonel B.O. Davis Jr. His father, B.O. Davis Sr., went into the military in 1891 and in 1941, he was a full colonel. I'll tell you a little story about that. In 1940, Roosevelt was running for his third term. The Republican nominee for president was a man by the name of Wendell Wilkie. Now, I'm going way back, and most of your audience probably aren't old enough to remember that. But Roosevelt was running for his third term. Now, Wendell Wilkie was rather shrewd, and he was trying to get the black vote away from Roosevelt. So he made the announcement that if you black folks vote for me, I will integrate immediately. Well, that sounded pretty good. But Roosevelt wasn't about to, as smart as he was, allow Wendell Wilkie, this upstart, to steal the black vote from him. So what he did was this. He took Colonel B.O. Davis Sr. and made him a brigadier general, a one-star general. 
He then went and took another gentleman by the name of William Hastie. William Hastie graduated from Harvard Law School. He had been a federal judge, and he was now dean of the law school at Howard University. He selected him to become the civilian aide to Secretary of War uh, Henry Stinson. And so those two things was primarily to win the black vote. Of course, he would, there was no way that West Hollywood was going to get the black vote anyway, but nevertheless, he was making sure that the black vote was still supporting him, and this was one of the ways, one of the two things that he did in order to secure the black vote, which is kind of interesting. So, and that was when Wilk, uh, when the president was running for president in 1940. Of course, he continued in that office until 1944, when he ran for the fourth time in his life, and he died in April of 1944, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So that's just a little history. So my commander was Colonel Davis, who was the son of General Davis. Colonel Davis went to West Point from 1932 to 1936. When he went into West Point, he was the only black cadet there. They gave him the so-called silent treatment. In those days, and even up to today, cadets selected their own roommates. No one was assigned. Well, none of his white classmates would accept him as a roommate. So he lived by himself the entire four years that he was there. They then gave him the silent treatment. He was only spoken to within an official capacity. That went on during the entire fourth year. He graduated in 1936 from West Point. He was 35 out of a class of 275. When you graduate that high, you get your choice of assignments. He asked to become a fighter pilot. And, of course, you know what the response was in 1936. They kind of, no, 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 you can't do that. There aren't any black pilots, so we don't have any black outfits. So that just won't work. Well, when Roosevelt passed the uh, training bill in March of 1941, the War Department immediately called out to General D.O. Davis, who had his son, who was a captain at that time, Captain Davis, working for him as his aide. And the War Department asked Brigadier General Davis, will you please encourage your son to apply for flight training? Because he was a West Pointer, and they had assumed that that was, he was the man to lead to be the leader of this new group of black pilots. So Bill Davis was in the first class, and he does become the commander of the 99th Fighter Squadron. Then after the 99th grew into the fighter group, the 332nd Fighter Group, uh, 
he was the commanding officer of the 332nd Fighter Group, which consisted of four squadrons, the 99th, the 100th, the 301st, and the 302nd. So we had four squadrons in our fighter group. And we were stationed at Ramantelli in the 15th Air Force Fighter Command, and we were doing the escort of all the bombers in the 15th Air Force. There was a total of seven groups that was assigned to the 15th. There was the 52nd Yellow Tails, there was the 31st uh, Candy Stripers and the 325th uh, Checkerboards. And those were the four P-51 Mustang fighter groups. And then we had three P-38 fighter groups who was also there. So we have seven fighter groups who was providing escort to the approximately 600 bombers that was assigned to the 15th Air Force. You have a question for me? If not, I can continue. <laughs> well, I do want to make a statement, though. I, when I was in college, uh, my first year as a freshman, you know, they, they wouldn't let us go up for the flying competitions until it was basically all the seniors that got to go. So I went as a, a bomber, and, you know, as soon as I was done with the bombing part, I went over and talked to somebody that had a P-51 Mustang into taking me up for a ride. So, Is that right? So I was goofing around doing all this stuff, and I never even heard that I won the bombing competition until I got back to the college, and they, they gave me my award, that, and like, where were you? <laughs> and then they found out that I was up there playing around in all these planes. So, uh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Now, a, I do want to say this, that P, of it. yeah, that P-51, you know, it cost them like 51000 back then. And I've got a... It was $100,000 a copy. I've got a, uh, a nephew who flies the U-28A, which is also a single-engine plane the Air Force uses right now, and it's $16.5 million, $16 million for that, and it only goes 220 knots at the most, and the, and the P-51 went 379 knots. <laughs> there so, is a difference. <laughs> well, I know, that, I know all the equipment on there and everything, but still, it's kind of, okay, keep going. Well, <laughs> Yeah, the interesting thing is uh, uh, the, the P-51 cost less than $100,000 a copy, as a, and they were turning them out by the thousands. Today, we only have a fractional part of the number of aircrafts we had fighting back in World War II, and even in the Korean War, or even in the Vietnam War, when we went into jets and so forth. Uh, back in uh, uh, back in those later wars. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Air Force today, they have two aircraft. One, the F-16, is an old jet, but it's a mainstay. And they got a number of those, and many of our friends over in Europe and the rest of them are flying the F-16 fighter. But then we have the F-22 Rapport, which is a much more advanced fighter, 
But now we have the F-35, which is the latest fighter, and there is an airplane in the world that can touch that airplane in terms of speed, maneuverability, and all of the things that that airplane can do. And, I mean, that thing is almost like a flying computer. But we only got no more than a couple hundred of those. But those things are running several millions of dollars per copy. I think the price is something up in excess of a hundred million per copy for those airplanes. And that's a lot of money for an airplane. Right, but, right. But this is the way it is now. So back to my days. Uh, so let's go back uh, 80, no, 70 years. And uh, uh, at that time, we had the, the P-47 and the P-38 was already the two primary fighters that we were using. Then they came out with the uh, P-51, and it became serviceable in 1942. And they started uh, uh, using the, the P-51 in combat during that time. And, of course, they started changing over to it. And uh, most, of the air, most of the fighter groups was giving up their P-47s and even their P-38s for the P-51. There was one fighter group over in the 8th Air Force, the 56th Fighter Group which is perhaps the most famous fighter group uh, that existed during the war at that time. They kept their P-47 Thunderbolts. They refused to give them up, and they had the most outstanding record of any fighter group over flying uh, over in Europe at that time. They had more victories and more aces in that fighter group than any others. And they never flew the P-51. They only flew the P-47. And that's how they thought about it. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. So a little bit about myself and my, and my combat flying. Uh, yeah. So the first time I got in trouble, well, let me tell you about the first flight, which was completely uneventful, and our flights were running uh, anywhere from uh, five and a half up to almost seven and a half hours, depending upon the targets that we went to. But we were flying long-range missions, and usually six, six and a half hours, seven was what most of our flights run. So that's a long time sitting in that little P-51, you know, escorting the bombers. Now, I was, uh, I got in a little trouble on my 12th mission. This was in December 1944. We went up and we had heard that the Germans had two new aircraft, the ME-163, which was a uh, a rocket ship, really, a plane with a rocket engine in it that would only they only used it in spurts. They would turn the uh, turn the engine on for just two or three seconds, turn it off, and it would just coast. Two or three seconds, turn it off, 
so it had minimum fuel and could, couldn't stay up very long. It never became operational, but it did fly. The other jet they had was the ME-262, which was a twin-engine jet, a beautiful airplane. That became an operational aircraft. I can recall we started seeing them in the latter, in the latter part of 1944. We started seeing these aircraft, and we were wondering, well, that is the new jet that they had. They were extremely fast pretty close to 100 miles an hour faster than the P-51 was. But because it was flying so fast, it wasn't that maneuverable. It was the, when it was flying, you know, 500 plus, they were going to a steep turn, and their turn was so big because they were flying so fast, we could turn tighter than they could. So they were most useful if they could sneak up on you. But if you spotted them, we were much more maneuverable, and they were not that successful in shooting down fighters. But they were very successful in shooting down bombers. And, and if they had only made more of them, it's interesting I've read a number of books about the German Air Force at that time. And when they came out with the ME-262, the first thing that Hitler asked was, well, is it a bomber, and how many bombs will it carry? Well, they hedged a bit because they didn't want to tell him that, no, this was a fighter. So they claimed, well, we can use it as a dive bomber so it can carry a couple of bombs. So, okay. He reluctantly allowed them to build the ME-262. But it was so late in the war, and they didn't have the materials and so forth that they needed really for their jet engines. They only built a small number of them. But had he embraced that ME-262 a year, year and a half earlier when it was first developed, it probably, they probably would have extended the war a good, maybe four, five, six months longer than when the war finally ended. And they would have impacted the war much more so had they been allowed to build as many of the ME-62s as they wanted. But they only had a small number of them, thanks to the stupidity of Hitler, who, because it was not a bomber, would not approve of the materials to go in to build that ME-262. Well, we started seeing them in late 1944, and I can remember the first time that they jumped us. I was on my 12th mission, and we were jumped by approximately, there were two flights of them, eight of them, that came in and jumped the bombers that we were escorting. And we immediately watched them as they came in. We, I was in the lead flight with the uh, uh, with uh, my squadron commander, and the lead flight we broke down on them just to try to stop them from actually going into the bombers command. And the one jet that me and my wingman picked up as we turned into them 
did the dumbest thing in the world. He saw me turn and dive on him, and all he had to do was to roll out and go straight and level, and he can run away from me because he's 100 miles an hour faster. But in doing, doing that, they use the old statistics of rolling over on their back and going straight down, which was a favorite maneuver with the Falk Wolf 190 and the Messersmith. So that's what this pilot does. So we followed him. Now, think about it a minute. He is going maximum speed straight level. When he rolls over and goes straight down, aerodynamically, he cannot go any faster. He stays at the exact same speed, even though he's going straight down because the aerodynamics of his aircraft will not allow it to go any further. Now, if you look at my P-51, my maximum speed was not 335, I'm sorry, 437 miles an hour. We were limited by the power of the aircraft. And we, our engines was only so big. If we had had a bigger engine, a more powerful engine, of course, it would mean a whole different looking aircraft, we could go faster. But 437 was our speed straight and level. Now, when I roll over and go straight down, I can pick up another 40, 50 miles an hour, and I can run at 450, 460, 470 miles, miles an hour. So when he pulls over and goes straight down, and I'm following him with my wingman, we're going straight down. His speed is constant. But now I have picked up another 50, 60 miles an hour. So I am starting the gap between he and I. He is not separating himself from me as fast as he could have done it had he go straight and level. So he is staying in my gun sight a much longer period of time. Because my speed is increasing, his speed is not. So here he is in my gun sight, and even though he is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, he is separating himself from me, but at a much slower rate, which gives me the opportunity to keep him in my gun sight for a longer period of time. So as we are going straight down, I'm hollering at my wingman, shoot, shoot, we might get in a lucky shot. Well, we didn't get in a lucky shot, and he was slowly getting out of range, so we finally broke it off. While we broke it off, and my Wayne and I we were trying to get back home, I didn't know it at the time, but my radios went out. Uh, we got separated. Uh, my wingman picked had good radios. He picked up a heady for our home base, and he was screaming at me, Hey, Harold. This is the heading for the home base. But my radios were inoperative, so I didn't hear it. So I just flew due south, and I knew I was getting low on fuel because we spent more time up there with that ME-262 than we should have. And we should have broken it off much, much sooner. But as I explained it to my squad commander, it was the exuberance of youth. And I didn't use good judgment. 
Well, long story short, I have fuel exhaustion, so at 25,000 feet, I lose my engine. So the worst thing that can happen to a fighter pilot is to give them time to think. Now, we're trained to do things immediately, within a split second. But here at 25,000, if I lose an engine, I got a lot of time on my hands, even though my plane becomes a glider and it is rapidly falling, but I still got complete control of it. So I am rapidly coming down from 25,000 feet with no engine, and I got all this time. So I started talking to myself, well, here, what are you going to do? Are you going to jump out of it, or are you going to stick with it? I said, ah, I'll worry about it later on. I was talking to myself. So the airplane goes through 20,000, heading for 15. The same question, well, Harold, what are you going to do? You're getting closer and closer. Oh, I'll worry about it later. So finally, when I get down to 10,000 feet, I said, okay, decision time. you got to make up your mind. At that time, I spotted an old abandoned fighter strip, and I said, well, I can land this airplane on that fighter strip. I can hail a, a, a truck. Hey, have them send me up some fuel. I can refuel, and I'll be home in an hour. Well, as I got closer, the strip was about 4,000 feet long, but as I got closer, there was a great big ditch that had been plowed right in the middle of the field about 10 feet wide. So a 4,000 foot now becomes a couple of 2,000 feet runway. Well, it's tough enough to land a P-51 dead stick on a 4,000. That would require a lot of skills. But on a 2000, it was almost impossible. But I already had made my decision, so that's what I had to do. So I landed it on the first 2000 feet. I kept my wheels up, I bellied the aircraft in, and it slid along the ground. It hits the ditch, teeters up in the air, and I broke the aircraft, broke in half right behind my cockpit. But it came to rest, it was standing on its nose in the ditch but it came to rest as it fell back on its belly. So I jumped out of it and dusted off my uniform and I congratulated myself on, Harold, you did a fantastic job. Any landing you can walk away from is a good landing. So <laughs> that was rather interesting and, uh, and it's a story that I, I often tell youngsters when I you know, talk to them, when I talk to a lot of kids, uh, classes and whatnot. But then the next thing that happened to me was on my 30th mission. That was when I was shot down. We were on a, a special strafing mission. You know what strafing is? You are shooting up ground, uh, ground targets, locomotives, anything that's moving. You are at low altitude and you are just shooting them up. That's what they call strafing. Well, we were on a special strafing mission for the 15th Air Force. And that is the one in which uh, I was going in on a locomotive. We had already finished the mission, had a very successful one. And while the other airplanes were circling, uh, again, I was flying the wing of my squadron commander. He said, Harold, we missed one. Let's go down and get that last locomotive. He took a couple of shots. I could see the smoke come from his guns. It stopped. He says, I'm out of ammunition. I said, well, get out of the way. I got a few bullets left. So I go in on it. 
I had that locomotive lit up just like a Christmas tree. And just as I passed over it, I knew I was getting in tight and I had to get out of there. And just as I passed over it, pulled up to pass over it, that's when the locomotives blew up. When it blew, a lot of the junk from the locomotive uh, hit my aircraft and damaged it very badly. It only ran for, oh, approximately three or four minutes, but it gave me enough time to gain a little altitude. So I climbed up to some 1,200 feet or so, and the guys were circling me. And then all of a sudden, I lost all my coolant. And when you lose your coolant, that was a liquid cool engine that Rolls-Royce engine was. It immediately freezes. So when that happened, I knew that was the end. So I just pulled the airplane up. I jettisoned, I jettisoned my canopy, rolled it over on its back, and kicked the stick forward, and that throws me out once I undo my seat belt. So I bailed out of it. And as I was coming down in the chute, uh, a couple of the guys, you know, circled me. They saw I was okay in the chute. And then I could hear those airplanes as they took off, I mean, as they started heading for home and I lost the sound of the engine, of course I landed on the ground. Snow was up to my knees. And uh, within a very short period of time, a couple of constables up on the hill, we were in the foothill of the Alps, came up over the hill, jumped off of their skis and pointed their rifles at me. Of course, I threw up my hands and whatnot. And, uh, they then led me back to a village we had just traced before. And as I approached the village, uh, I was you know, telling myself, what in the world am I doing up here in Germany? I'm only 20 years old with this black face. I've got no business being up here. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And we went down to the village, and there's about 35 or 40 angry people. And I mean, they were angry because that was one of the targets uh, that we were shooting up. Now, we aren't shooting at people, but there's shrapnel bullets flying all over the place. And after I thought about it rationally, you know, after everything was all over with, uh, the war was over, I thought, well, they had every right to be angry. Because here we are shooting the place up. A bullet could have accidentally hit his wife or his child, killed him. And here I come floating down in a parachute. Well... Once they saw me, they had only one thing in, in mind. That's the guy who just caused the death of my wife or my child. So they were angry, and they had every right to be angry. So nevertheless, I walked in to that village, 35, 40 of the angriest people I've ever met in my life. And they made it perfectly clear, although I couldn't speak German, I could see all of the little signs and signals holding their fingers up like a gun and whatnot, saying, boom, boom, I knew precisely what they had in mind. They took me down to a tree, and it was the perfect hanging tree. And I kept talking to myself, well, Harold, what are you going to do? You know, you're about to die. Uh, and I was answering myself, well, I don't know what to do. What in the world can I do? I can't run. There's no place to run. I can't hide. Here I am up in Germany in this little village with 35 angry people and two policemen. I am going to die. And 
that was the most difficult thing I have ever experienced in my life and the scariest thing I've ever happened in my life because I knew at that time I was going to die and I was trying to accept the fact that what are you going to do in those last few minutes? And I just told myself, well, I suppose I would just react. Either I'll try to run or something, and they'll either wind up shooting me or they'll grab me and hang me anyway or whatever they're going to do to me. There was another constable. I saw him way in the back, but I paid no attention to him. Next thing I knew, I felt his hand on my shoulder. He snatched me back. He stepped in front of me. He put a round in his rifle. And he kept the people from killing me. He and I slowly backed up with those 35 people following, hollering and screaming. He is screaming at them. He is waving his rifle around. And I assume that he was telling them, you know, you know, don't get any closer, I will shoot. And when you stop and think about it, he was the constable in that village. He knew everyone in that village. There were probably friends of his in that crowd, but he kept the people from murdering me. We backed up into a little pub. We went in. He chased everyone out of the pub. We barricaded ourselves in the pub. The pub had windows, but it had bars on the windows. So it was getting close to evening, and the people were still pounding on the doors, hollering and screaming, trying to get in. But then as it got dark, it got cooler. This was in March of 1945, and the crowd slowly dispersed. Finally, around midnight or so, uh, it was clear that there wasn't anyone around. So we went out the back, uh, the back of the building, and we went and we walked those uh, some three or four kilometers down the road to another village. And uh, he got on the phone, and uh, shortly thereafter, a couple of uh, German soldiers came and uh, picked me up. And then from that point on, it was just a matter of trying to get into a prison camp. Uh, they put me in a jail for a couple of days, and I heard a mission go over, and I thought, boy, I might have company. And sure enough, there was a B-24 bomber crew bailed out, and they had picked them up, and they brought them into this little jailhouse that I was in. And it was interesting because I could see how wild and frightened they looked. First, they had to survive bailing out of the aircraft. They were all caught, rounded up, brought in, you know, thrown into the jail. And they saw me standing there, and they're looking at me. They don't know what to think. But here I am, I got on my flight jacket, I'm wearing wings on my flight jacket, and uh, they looked at me and they said, are you an American? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a, are you a pilot? I said, yeah, I'm a pilot, I got wings just like you got, yeah, yeah. And they were, what's going to happen? I said, I don't know, I was shot down, you know, a few days ago, and uh, I assumed that uh, we're going to get marched to a prison camp if we're lucky enough to get into one, because that was the safe haven, you know, to get into a prison camp. So it took us eight days of, uh, of traveling, and we would travel by anything that was convenient. Sometimes we were on a bus. You know, we had a couple of prison guards with us. There were 
11 of us with the two guards. Sometimes we were on a bus, sometimes we were on a train, uh, anything that would move as we were heading towards the prison camp. And they were taking us from where we were shot down up to Nuremberg. But Nuremberg was where the big interrogation center was. The Americans were getting closer and closer as they came in from the west. So everything started moving inward. And uh, the interrogation center uh, eventually wound up in Nuremberg. And that's where they took us. Uh, we were interrogated. And uh, then uh, they took us from the interrogation about uh, the prison camp was, I don't know, four or five miles down the road of peace. And, uh, and there's where I spent my first uh, oh. 12, 13 days or so in a POW camp. There were about 10,000 of us uh, down in Nuremberg. That was in Stalag number uh, 13A. We stayed in there, oh, geez, for about, uh, like I said, a couple of weeks or so, but the Americans were getting closer and closer, so they evacuated us out. And this is all in the book, incidentally. And uh, they walked us in groups of 200, and there must have been, we must have been a mile long. And uh, at night, they would put us on, you know, farmhouses, uh, big farmland, you know, 200 here with a couple of guards, 200, 200, 200. And they would just distribute us around with a couple of guards, and we'd sleep out underneath the stars, which was better than sleeping under that barbed wire in that prison camp, really. We had a little bit of uh, freedom. There's one thing in the book that I talk about that was rather humorous. And uh, uh, there was one place we arrived at. There was a farmhouse there. And I was a real baby looking. And I was, and I really looked like a baby. Because I was only 20 years old at the time. But I looked, you know, like I was a young teenager. So we would get. International Red Cross was trying to get in food parcels to all the prisoners. As a matter of fact, that's what kept all the POWs alive because they were able uh, to get in food parcels uh, to the prisoners of war uh, at that time. So in every package, there were cigarettes. So instead of smoking them, we would use them to trade. So I was the young guy, uh, and we were in groups of seven. The guys would give me all of the cigarettes. I would go out, you know, to a little local farmhouse, knock on the door, and uh, I had some broken German, you know, and I knew how to say a habasi brot for cigarettes, which was have you bread for cigarettes, and I knew the word for uh, bread was broten, zapatos was potatoes, and I knew a couple of other words that I had picked up. And this little old lady came to uh, the door this time. She must have been 90 years old, just as sweet as she could be. Couldn't have been more than four feet, four and a half feet tall. And she was rubbing my face just as gently, and she was talking to me, which I couldn't understand and just gently rubbing my face and talking to me. And then she held her fingers just to say, wait a minute. She goes in the other room and comes out with a little bag of food. And there was a piece of bread in it, some potatoes, a few onions, and a small chunk of meat. And I was trying to give her the cigarettes 
because she gave me the bag of food, but she wouldn't accept the cigarettes. You know, she was saying nine, 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 and I'm saying yes, yes, trying to give her the cigarettes, but she wouldn't take them. But, you know, I often wonder what in the world was going on in her mind. And I assumed at that time that I was probably the first black person that she had ever seen in her life. And the way she was rubbing my face in the book, I said, I wonder if she was trying to rub it off <laughs> or not. <laughs> but, uh, but that is some of the humorous things that happened. Uh, but we went from there down to Mooseburg. We were at Mooseburg for a couple of weeks, and then Patton came through and liberated us. Uh, that was on April the 29th, and uh, the war ended on May the 5th. And, uh, you know, I got home on uh, the 12th of June. Uh, I got into Cat Patrick Henry. Uh, no, I got in the compact and Henry. I left the heart of France on the 12th of June and got back in the States on the 20th. And uh, they gave us, you know, clean clothes and a little money and whatnot. We all went home for 60 days as POWs. And uh, I went back to Minneapolis. Uh, and I had an, elder, an older brother uh, who was in the military at that time. And... Uh, we didn't have a good relationship. He was five years older than I was. And there are times when we were kids together. Uh, Ma would tell uh, my brother, now you got to take a hair a little longer else you can't go. And he would, oh, Ma, do I have to drag him along? I don't want to, you know. And you know how that is between an older brother and a younger one. He didn't want me with him, and I didn't want to be with him. <laughs> But he was five years much my senior. Uh, in 1942, uh, he was drafted at the same time I graduated from high school. Uh, and it's interesting because when he was drafted in 1942, we never wrote to each other. We was never in contact with each other. And this went on until February of 1945. And he, which I didn't know, was on his way down to see me. He was up in northern Italy and was on his way down to see me. Like I said, we, hadn't not, we had not communicated with each other at all. I get a call the next morning, and they said, will you come in and identify Staff Sergeant Lawrence Brown? And I don't know why they used the word identify, so I thought he was dead. And they were at Fourth Field Hospital, which was just about a mile down the road from our base at Ramatelli. So I jumped in the Jeep and went down and, you know, asked uh, where's he at, and they directed me around to where he was, but he was not dead, thank God. And uh, I went in, and it's interesting. He was on a truck. Twelve guys was on it. The truck went over a bridge. Four of them were thrown thrown out of the uh, truck, was uninjured. Four of them were killed. And uh, the other four, my brother, they were pinned underneath the truck in this little creek. And my brother kept couldn't move because the truck was on him. He was taking the, the mud and whatnot from the little shallow creek and keeping his head up out of the water to keep from drowning. So when I saw him the next day, he was a mess. I mean, he didn't have, 
he had, he was somebody just a mass of scars and bruises, and he looked like he was more dead than alive. And the first thing he said to me, uh, he said, Harold, is that you? I said, yeah, Bubba. I always called him Bubba. And the first thing he said was, Harold, will you brush my teeth? <laughs> so that was the first time that I saw my brother in three years. The very next day I went in to see him, I said, uh, I'm going on rest and recuperation down to Naples. But as soon as I get back, I'll be riding to see you. As you fly every so many missions, they would send you on what they call R&R, which was rest and recuperation for one week. We had a beautiful hotel down in Naples, and you could look out over the Bay of Naples, and I could see Mount Vesuvius right over there. And it was right across the bay from us. We were in a beautiful hotel. And you stay there for a week. Well, at the end of my rest and recuperation, I came back. As I, as soon as I got back, I immediately went to see him. And I said, hey, I'm flying a mission tomorrow morning, but I'll be in as soon as I finish the mission. Well, that was my 30th mission, and that was the mission that I was shot down on. So I didn't get to see him again. But you can imagine my parents, they had just gotten uh, a message from the War Department that my brother was seriously injured in this crash. And then two weeks later, they get another telegram saying that I was missing in action. So that was pretty tough on uh, mom and dad. Uh, but uh, we both survived the war, and I guess that's the most important thing. And we were home at the same time. He came home in June the same time that I did. Uh, I stayed in the military. I stayed in for 23 years, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, he uh, was still injured, so they kept him in for another, oh, I think 12, 14 months until his injuries were healed to the point where they could discharge him. And he continued living in Minneapolis. Uh, he died about five years ago in, uh, in night. Let me see. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just about five years ago, he passed away. And like hey. I say, he was five years my senior. So that Dr. was Brown? My, my years, my war years. Hey, Dr. Brown. Yes. Um, it sounds like, I mean, even from the beginning with with your desire to, uh, you know, fly the planes, and it really sounds like God just had his hand upon you through everything. I mean, you know, from the constable to all the different, uh, the, you know, the accidents and the stuff that happened and the, the crashes. And... Hey, you know, I tell everyone, you know, I survived. And they said, what, what's that you remember most? And it's the fact that I survived. And let me just add one thing. After I came home, I was home for 60 days. I turned 21 that August. I went down to Tuskegee in September as a flight instructor. I was in Tuskegee, and I was training to become an uh, instrument instructor I was under the hood of a T6. I don't know if you know what a T6 even looks like, but I was under the hood. We had a mid-air collision. The guys in the other aircraft, their airplane was disabled. They had to bail out of their aircraft. Our aircraft was seriously damaged. We managed to land our aircraft safely, 
So I crash landed one. I bailed out of one. I had a mid-air collision all by the time I was 21 years and two months old. Wow. Yeah, you know, and people, and I said, you know, I everything that could happen to me, there isn't anything else that could happen. If you crash land one, if you jump out of one, if you had a minute collision, there isn't anything left. And I said, well, I experienced it all. Uh, and I said, someone was looking out for me. And my mother was a very, very religious person. Of course, and we went to church regularly and whatnot. And, uh, uh, and you know, mine used to always, after I got home, and uh, my mother, she really believed in the power of prayer. Uh, she took in a number of children who did not have parents, and Ma always had several kids living at the house, and she just loved children. And she did that throughout her whole life. She always had two or three kids, additional kids, living with her. And then after the war, i go home and visit my ma, and uh, they were fortunate enough to be able to uh, save up enough money to buy a great big farm up in Aiken, Minnesota, uh, and that's where they spent uh, the rest of their lives up there. And even when i go home to visit ma, there were a couple of, you know, little kids that she was there taking care of. But she really believed in the power of prayer, and I can remember coming home from the war and uh, and Ma set me down, and uh, and she said, "Do you know why you're here safely?" I said, "Well, I think I know what you're going to say, Ma." And she said, "Harold, how I prayed for you every night, every night," and she, and she believed that. Uh, she believed that if she got on her knees and prayed, that the Lord would answer her prayers. And it seems as if that was always the case. I can remember as a young kid, my mother paid her tithes, 10%. Every, every day, dad, every week, dad got a paycheck. And I can remember hearing my mother and dad talking in the other room, and particularly during the time of the Depression, back in the, back in the early and mid-1930s, when the Great Depression was on. And it was really tough. And... Uh, there was only a small amount of money in the house. And Ma, she was the boss. She would tell Dad, well, we haven't paid our tithes yet. And Ma said, but wait a minute, Ellie, that's all the money we got. You know, you aren't going to give that to the church. She said, nope, that's not our money. That's the Lord's money. And she would take that 10% and pay her tithes. And she did that every, every week of her life. She would pay her tithes. And, uh, you know, and Ma said, well, Harold, I, how I, she told me how she prayed for me every night, every night, every night. And she said, the, the Lord answered my prayers, you know. And, and if you ask me, somebody was taking care of me because all that didn't happen. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it, you know. My crash landing, yeah, I I had some skills, but someone had to be looking out for me. When I bailed out, someone certainly had to be looking out for me. And with that mid-air collision, I had no control over that whatsoever. So someone you know, was taking care of me. Yeah, there was a town in Texas, and they all got together, 
and they so they had somebody praying 24 hours a day uh, uh psalms 91 over all the all their men that went off to war and not one of them lost their lives every one of them came back isn't that something you know you know you hear stories like that and uh well what else are you going how else can you can you account for it someone had to be doing that and there's only someone i know who was capable of doing it <laughs> that's, that's right lower huh who else that is right yeah you know so well i don't want to keep you i mean i've already went way over <laughs> the interview your, your wife's probably gonna be mad at me but um, no, okay. <laughs> but but you know my wife has already set up there is a uh, veterans home in Tyler, Texas, that is w- waiting for the us to finish the show so they can listen to it. So, oh my <laughs> you goodness! Were, well, I you were just, saying, I hope they can understand me because I've just been randomly yakety 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 yakety. <laughs> oh no, no, it was very good. It was very good. Um, <laughs> well, that's I, I I do appreciate you coming on, and I want to mention your book again because you say so much more. You know, um, the name of the book is Keeping Your Airspeed Up. Uh, the only other thing I really wanted you to talk about was um, uh, it was about, uh, you know, there, there's no free rides and working hard. Um, oh, no. Uh-uh. There's no because, such thing. Yeah, the, these kids nowadays, they need to hear that. They need to, you know, hey, if you would just keep going and don't quit. Well, you got that right, you know. We have something called Rise Above, and uh, a chapter of the Commemorative Air Force, they restored a P-51C aircraft and painted it all up in, into a, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen's colors. They also have a great big semi-trailer. That semi-trailer converts into a 35-seat panorama theater. And there is a 35-minute film about the Tuskegee Airmen. The guy who came up with this was a guy by the name of Don Hines. He was a retired Navy commander, was quite successful. And uh, he was also a member of this chapter. And uh, when they took on this project to restore the P-51, the Minnesota State Legislature gave them $100,000 seed money, but they had to raise two million dollars to finish the whole project which they did and when they did it the reason they did it for one reason and don hines came up with this whole deal of the airplane and the semi-control uh semi-trailer and what they wanted to do was to take the lessons of the tuskegee airmen into every classroom in this country and that is what they have strived to do. This organization, that airplane first flew in 2001. I went up to Minnesota because I was there up in 1997 on a fundraiser. There were five of us Tuskegee Airmen still up there. In 2001, when the first airplane flew, I flew in that aircraft with the flight test pilot. I was the first civilian you know, to climb in the airplane. That airplane flew until 2004, and whenever I had some free time, wherever they were having the air show, 
I would try, or one of the Tuskegee Airmen would try to get up there to it, because they had a lot of memorabilia and whatnot, and they would sign them. And this is how the chapter made money to keep the airplane and that semi-trailer, you know, out on the road doing their thing with it. The airplane crashed in 2004, and Don Hines, the guy who came up with this idea, he was killed. Matter of fact, I was there at Red Wing, standing right next to his wife uh, when the crash happened, which I hope I never have to experience something like that again. But nevertheless, we rebuilt the airplane. It took uh, from 2004 up to 2009 before they had rebuilt the aircraft. That aircraft is still flying today. They have a very lengthy flight schedule where the airplane and the semi-trailer goes off together as a pair to some air show. But the neat thing and why they needed the semi-trailer, because they wanted to take that to high schools where there wasn't any airport around. So okay. where there is an airport, the two of them shows up. Where there is no airport, only the semi-trailer goes up. And we have six principals. We talked to all of the youngsters. You know, matter of fact, I've talked to so many youngsters. I've been in so many schools. It isn't funny. But we talk about these six principles. They're aim high. Uh, you know, never give up. Always be prepared and such and such. And we preach those six principles. We have them printed on a little dog tag. And when we go in and talk to the kids, we give them a little dog tag. And the dog tag is red because the tail end of our aircraft, we were known as the red tails because we had red tails on our P-51s. Matter of fact, we were known as the red tail angels, really, with all of the bomber pilots. But this is what we do. And uh, the... The airplane stays down in Dallas, Texas during the winter months, and it was just last month that they started off on this year's tour. And they've got some 50 different airports that they'll be traveling to with the semi-trailer. Then the semi-trailer, when they're not in the airport, will be going to other schools where there is no airport and taking the message of the Tuskegee Airmen. And the whole thing is revolved around rise above the Tuskegee Airmen rose above obstacles after obstacles after obstacles in order to achieve what they did achieve during World War II. So they take those lessons, they take them out, the lessons of the Tuskegee Airmen, and all we preach, you can become anything you want to become. But you got to stay focused, you got to work hard, and it will take some sacrifice. Nothing comes for free. Marcia, would you mind yes. just telling tell the website and, and uh, where they can get the books and stuff like that? Well, the website is www.airspeedup.com. And so there's actually a lot of information there. And um, our Facebook page, if you go to the website, there's a big F at the bottom of it for Facebook. And then there's lots of um, videos. I mean, absolutely fabulous videotapes of Harold um, there. And so 
But our website, you can order books, and you can also get them from Amazon. So the ones from our website are signed copies. The ones, obviously, from Amazon are not. I want to thank you both for being on tonight. Well, thank you. Thank you for your interest. It's a, um, it's a noble story. It's, it, you know, I always say, Harold's story is America's story, and it's what we're about as Americans. I mean, we're, you know, give people a chance, and whether they're black, white, or red or whatever, give them a chance and they will add so much to our country. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's just a great story. Well, thank you, Marcia. God bless. bless you, you too. Really appreciate it. Thank you, dear. Thank you, too. Mm, bye-bye.